Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at the last four verses of the chapter. But I would like to begin reading in verse 13. So 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 13. As you find your place there, let's stand together. And we will read this second half of the chapter together. First Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your your generosity to us by getting us all here safely this morning. And we ask that you would be gracious further by opening the scriptures up to us. Would you also please minimize any distractions that might divert our attention from your word We desire to know you more and to love you more, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would use your word to call us to you, that you would have your way with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have, what? Love for one another. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for one another. Uh, 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We've heard these things so many times that you can just fill in the blanks, right? This is, this is just the natural part of the Christian life. Now, why is the expectation to love such a vital part of the Christian life? It's because it is such a hallmark of the character of our God and Savior. 1 John tells us that God is love. In our deadness in sin, we were natural-born haters of God and haters of one another. But this spilt blood of Jesus that we talk about and His resurrection three days later Through those things, we were transformed into saints with a new capacity to love. To love like He does. And so He calls us to do just that so that the world will see Him in us. And that is why we must love one another as He loves us. And so He commands us to do this throughout the Bible. Peter is writing to us, as elect exiles, we're strangers in this world who, who convey a message and live a life that draws upon us the poor treatment of the world. And this poor treatment, Peter has characterized as a testing of our faith. <coughs> and the apostle exhorts us in this letter to meet that testing of our faith by setting our hope fully on the coming salvation, and entrusting our souls fully to a faithful Creator while doing good. And continuing to do good is an essential part of the life of an elect exile because it's tempting to bow to the pressure of the world around us in order to avoid their displeasure. But that's not an option for us as elect exiles. We are called to live lives that coincide with the things that we say we believe. And we've, we've already looked at three components of this lifestyle of, of an elect exile. The first of those a few weeks ago was be hopeful. The, the elect exile has been born again to a living hope, and so he obeys that command to be hopeful by intentionally setting his mind on the reality of the hope that has been given to him and by turning away from his former passions. Second, the elect exile is commanded to be holy. The elect exile considers himself set apart from the world in his character and conduct. And he sees that God is holy, and so he pursues holiness in every part of his life. Third, there's the command to be fearful, which we looked at last week. The elect exile lives his life with this constant awareness that he's owned by the Father, that he was bought with the precious blood of Jesus, and that he's been entrusted with this glorious mystery of the gospel. And so he lives his life in accordance with those things, with this, with this wonderful, fearful reverence under the lordship of God. Now, now, this morning, we're turning to the fourth component of conduct becoming of an elect exile, and it is this, be loving. Peter exhorts us to be loving. So that's the first point in your notes. It's the main idea this morning. Be loving. Look at verse 22 with me again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, 
love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That main imperative comes from the second half of the verse. And here I would like to quote the esteemed theologians of 1990s hip-hop, DC Talk. Love is, love is, love is a verb. Mixing Christian rap with grammar really excites me. Of course, love is also a noun. But uh, in this verse, it is a verb, and it's an imperative verb, to be precise. It's a command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's an order. And the, the object of our love is our brothers and sisters in Christ, specifically here. Conduct becoming of an elect exile is to love the church. I'm not, I'm not going to say Anything more about that command at this, at this point, we'll get more into it as, as we discover some of these other things. But Peter surrounds this, commands, this command with reasons to do it. So we're going to go ahead and move on to the second point. Don't get excited. We're not going to get done that quickly, okay? The, 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 fir- the second point and the first reason to love one another is because of the goal of your consecration, all right? You should love one another because of the goal of your consecration. Verse 22 again says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. There's a participial phrase at the beginning there that gives a reason why we should love one another. Having purified your souls, because you've purified your souls, love one another. That participle is in the active voice, which which means you have purified your souls. Now, what what does that highlight? Well, it highlights our volition, our our decision to do this. And some in our Reformed circles may get heartburn over this, but there's really no reason for that. Regeneration, which is God bringing us to spiritual life, is what we would call a monergistic work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works on His own with no cooperation from the dead sinner. Dead people can't do things. So the the Holy Spirit acts upon the dead sinner, gives the dead sinner repentance and faith, frees his will from sin in such a way that what that dead sinner most wants is to repent and believe. Now Peter has already talked about this thing that we call monergistic regeneration back in verse 3. When he said of the Lord that he has caused us to be born again. And he's going to do it again here in a few verses. In, in, in verse 23, the ESV isn't as clear in verse 23, but it is a passive verb. He says, you were caused to be born again. No one who has ever been saved has done so by willing themselves to be regenerated. Just like Lazarus didn't will himself to life. He was called to life. So the sinner is dead in trespasses and sins. But inevitably, the person whom God brings to spiritual life then exercises their volition, that is, what they most want, by giving themselves to God. And and only those chosen by God and regenerated make that decision. 
And all those who are chosen by God and regenerated make that decision. Now, it, it may seem like that's not a real choice if we were chosen and regenerated by Him and it was therefore certain that we would choose to respond in faith. But there are, excuse me, there are philosophical and logical problems with the typical understanding of what constitutes a free choice. I don't have time to go into that right now, but if you would like to have a nerd coffee with me, I would be happy to go into it with you. I have written extensively about that on our blog, so you can look that up there. But just very briefly, a real choice is doing what you most want to do. And that's precisely what a regenerated person does when they inevitably choose Christ. Anyway, when Peter talks about purifying the soul, sorry y'all, I'm going to try to hold it together here. Anyway, when Peter talks about purifying the soul, he uses language of Old Testament consecration. The people were set apart for God's use by ceremonial washing. So that same verb in the Greek version of Exodus 19, when the, uh, it's used in Exodus 19 when the people were consecrated for their covenant with Yahweh. So Exodus 19.10 says that Yahweh said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments the words used that way repeatedly in the book of Numbers and the instruments of worship in the tabernacle, they were consecrated in that way as well. And the idea is that these things, these people were being set apart for God's use. Peter uses that language here of New Testament believers. And the idea is that when you believe to the gospel or to use the language that, that Peter uses here, when you when you trusted, or I'm sorry, when you obeyed the truth, you set yourself apart for God's purpose. The idea of the gospel as something to be obeyed is a theme here in 1 Peter. It's going to come up explicitly in 4.17. It'll come up again in 3.1. When you obeyed the truth, when you believed the gospel, you consecrated yourself, you set yourself apart for God's purpose, which he identifies here as sincere brotherly love. So God's whole trajectory for your life post-conversion is that you would love one another. You were saved unto love, consecrated unto love. So remember that love command in John 13. In fact, why don't you turn over there with me, John 13, 34. John 13, 34, we spent a good deal of time in John 13 through 17 a few months ago. John 13, 34, Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And remember that in that context, Jesus is revealing to the disciples that He's going away from them. And His command for them to love one another was intended to be a comfort. So He's going away, but it's not that they're going to be uncared for. He's going to care for them through one another, through their obedience to that command. We, we, we may tend to take this command to love one another and divorce it from everything that God does for us in Christ, but... It's actually one of the gifts that God gives us in Christ. 
It's the functional aspect of the gift of the body of Christ. That metaphor of the body is so wonderful because it accomplishes so many things. It speaks to the union that we have in Jesus. It speaks to the fact that we draw strength and direction from Him. But it also speaks to the fact that we are His hands and feet and voice. He, he uses us to love one another on His behalf. He has not just reconciled us to the Father and joined us to Himself as the head of one individual believer, but He's reconciled us to the Father as a body And we are conduits of His love in one another's lives. Now, Peter says that our salvation is geared toward a very high standard of love. He says it's sincere love. And the word sincere could literally be translated non-hypocritical. Non-hypocritical love. We're called to a love that feels real affection for the other person. The Greek word is Philadelphia. It's translated brotherly affection in, in other places in the New Testament. And we may think, that's, that's not possible for me, this, this genuine affection, especially for persons A, B, and C. I can't feel genuine affection for those people. I can do loving things for them, but I can't actually feel affection for them. We, we, we frequently make a distinction between feeling affection, and doing loving things. And certainly, that they are two different concepts. But the fact that Peter calls this non-hypocritical affection leads me to believe that it may not be possible to do truly loving things from, that, that do not come from a heart of affection. If I, if I do outward things, for someone that look like they're loving, but they're not coming from a heart that feels true affection for that person, that would seem to be the picture of hypocrisy. In other words, it would seem that that would be hypocritical affection or love. Why else would Peter use the word genuine or non-hypocritical here? It seems that he's wanting the, the loving things that we do for one another to spring from genuine hearts of affection for one another. And let me ask, what, what are we saying about the gospel when we proclaim that, that, that we are incapable of loving a particular person in the body of Christ? We are denying the gospel. Worse than that, we're saying we can't love Jesus. Now that may sound a little bold. I don't think it's too bold. If you're taking notes, write down Matthew 25, verses 31 and following. Matthew 25, 31 and following. In that passage, Jesus explains that our disposition toward the least of our brothers is our disposition toward Jesus. He makes that connection there. Whatever you do to the least of the brothers is what you do to Jesus. He makes that connection. And the terrifying thing about that passage is that it is on that basis that Jesus will send people to eternal punishment or to eternal life. The fact is that the very Spirit who empowered Jesus Himself for ministry lives inside of us and empowers us for ministry. It, it is 
The spirit that lives inside of you is the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ loves every one of us. He lives inside of every one of us. And the the ability to feel affection for one another and have that affection fuel acts of love requires nothing more than submission to the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So when he says, having purified yourselves for sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart, it would seem that he means having set yourself apart to feel genuine affection for one another, let that genuine affection be the fuel of of loving deeds. So you, you have consecrated yourself unto affection for the saints. Let that affection give rise to a way of life. There's a very real sense in which when you come to Christ, you do so for the purpose of loving people. That's that's the whole trajectory. To, To set yourself apart by faith as a disciple of Jesus is, and then to not grow in your love for His body and have affection for them and actively love them, that would be similar to becoming a doctor and then setting, putting out your shingle and, and wearing the white stethoscope, uh, the, the white coat and, 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 and carrying a stethoscope, but then never seeing any patients. It's like, well, you're not really a doctor. Well, if you, if, you, if, you, if you follow Christ and you don't love his people, you're not really a Christian. That is the teaching of the New Testament. Paul agrees with this, with, he agrees with Peter. 1 Timothy 1.5 reads, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of our charge, what he means is the, the goal of this task, where this ministry of the gospel is heading, is for believers to love one another from pure hearts. So we should love one another because this is the purpose for which we purified ourselves. A second reason is found in the following verses. It's our third point. We should love one another because it accords with the agent of our new birth. It accords with the agent of our new birth. Look with me beginning at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Now, look again at the end of verse 22. He says, love one another earnestly. The word earnestly points to eagerness to endure in love or persevere in love. We we, we may wrongly think of earnestly as just zealous love like a flash in the pan kind of thing. The Greek word underlying earnestly is, is a zeal for enduring love. This is going to last, okay? So we're called to the kind of love that lasts, a, a zeal for that kind of love, because of the nature of the agent of our new birth, mentioned in verse 23. We've been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, the living and abiding Word of God. Now, Peter loves this contrast between the perishable and the imperishable. This is now the third time he's using it. 
And here, the imperishable is the word of the gospel. The imperishable word caused us to be born again. We're acted upon by the word of God. And this word has, has a couple of attributes that he names. Living and abiding. He majors on the second of those two by using a quotation from Isaiah 40. Look at verses 24 and 25. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word of the good news that was preached to you. For the word of the Lord remains forever, for the word of the Lord to remain forever, means for it to be eternally true and for it to accomplish its purpose. The Word accomplishes its purpose. We find this, this kind of thing all over the Scriptures. Listen to Isaiah 55. If, you wanna, if, you're writing, if you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Holy Spirit inspires there. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, bringing it, uh, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my Word be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Word of God abides, endures, remains forever. Among other ways, in that it accomplishes His eternal plan. And at the end of verse 25, he says specifically that he's talking about the gospel. This is the the word of the good news that was preached to you. So the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to quicken the dead sinner is the preaching of the gospel. The Spirit used the gospel to, to quicken you, and that gospel is going to have its way. He used it to quicken you, to bring you to new life, to produce love. Now, what kind of love is this? What kind of love is it that this abiding word is going to produce? How many things are there that never end other than our souls? Can you think of, of, of anything other than your soul that never ends? Obviously, the Word of God is one we've just seen. It, 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 it endures forever. What else is there? I've looked. I could find one thing mentioned explicitly in Scripture that never ends. Just one. It's, impossible, it's entirely possible that, I, that I've missed something. But as far as I can tell, there, there are two things other than our souls that will cross from this life to the next. There's God's Word and one other thing. Turn, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. You can't take it with you, they say. The things of this world, you can't take them with you when you die. Well, there are two things. And if you can, if there are two things you can take, man, why wouldn't you, why on earth wouldn't you invest your time in those two things? We know God's Word is one. Those of you who know 1 Corinthians 13, you already know what the other one is, don't you? 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Makes sense, doesn't it? That 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 this is the kind of love that the abiding word would produce. The abiding word produces abiding love. Two things that carry over from this life into the next life. God's word and love. Peter calls us to not just any kind of love, but enduring, abiding, earnest love. Love that coincides with the nature of the agent of our new birth. God's word is enduring, so it is it it produces enduring love. So Peter appeals to the heart of affection that is the trajectory of our consecration, and he calls us to love one another in deeds from a pure heart. Deeds that coincide with the nature of the word that has given us the new birth. But what would it look like to do this? What would it look like to love in this way? I I would submit to you that the most practical way to get at this, at, at what it looks like to love people, is to look at the other one another commands in the New Testament. All of the one another commands in the New Testament could be subsumed under the umbrella of the one another command. I mean, of the love one another command. So let's talk about a few of these, okay? We we don't have time to go through every one of them individually, but they can kind of be grouped together. And and I've done that. Aren't you appreciative? So I'm, I'm 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 gonna give you one word for each group, okay? One word to represent each group. As I go through each of these, I want you to just ask yourself the question, how am I doing with this? Not how is she or how is he doing, but how am I doing? I'm going to give you five. First group is harmonize. Harmonize. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Mark 9.50, be at peace with one another. Ephesians 4.2, bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, as God in Christ forgave you. This harmonized group encompasses everything from don't get bent out of shape over things that don't matter, all the way to forgive from the heart, just like Christ, enormous offenses. That whole group is harmonized. That is love. It's possible that there is nothing more damaging to the reputation of Jesus Christ 
in this world and the success of his mission than people who claim his name who cannot get along. Conversely, it's almost a startling thing when you see a, a group of people, none of whom are perfect, but who are patient with one another and who forgive each other completely when wronged. That, that's an otherworldly phenomenon that can only come from a divine power source. If you get a, a church like that, a church that has this whole reconciliation thing nailed, bearing with one another nailed, that church is unstoppable. So I would ask you, are you loving the brethren by harmonizing in those ways? Second, edify. Edify. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Hebrews 10.24 And let us encourage how to stir up one another to love and good works. Put all of these together, and the idea is to do everything you can to edify, to, to build up one another, help one another grow in the faith. And it, it will include things like ministering the word to one another, encouraging one another, warning those who are straying, stirring each other up to love and good works, rebuking those who are in sin. Yes, that is right. A loving rebuke is an edifying thing. It builds up the body. So I would ask you, are you loving the saints by edifying believers in this body? Third, pray. Pray. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Ephesians 6.18 Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. For what do you spend the bulk of your time praying? I think it's obvious that most of us are going to pray for ourselves and our families. We're commanded to pray for one another. Further, we here at Providence, if you're a member of Providence, you've covenanted You've made a solemn promise before God to pray for the other members of this church. I would call your attention again to Ephesians 6.18, which says, make supplication for all the saints. That is the church universal. Pray for all believers everywhere. Now, the dirty little secret in most churches is that the majority of professing Christians do not have a regular time of prayer each day. Of those that do, only a small small portion spend any time praying for anyone other than themselves and their immediate family. Is that the case here at Providence? I have no way of knowing. 
But each of us, individuals, we, we know what's the case in our own lives. So let us, let's ask the question. Are we, are you loving the saints by praying for one another? Fourth, invite. Invite. First Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12.13, seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. There, there, there's another translation. I can't remember which one it is, but it's, it's pursued hospitality. Like, be aggressively hospitable. What does it mean to show hospitality? This is not rocket surgery. It's just inviting people into your home. That's all it is. And that action itself, it, it, it isn't just an inherently virtuous thing. The reason that the Lord commands us to do this is because of how important it is for us to live life together. It's a mechanism for living our lives in community. We're not supposed to, to only be together on Sunday mornings and worship gatherings. In order to grow in Christ, we must spend meaningful time with one another. To that end, we're commanded to invite one another into our homes. Now, this is going to sound harsh, but I, I just read the Scriptures to you. If you only spend time with believers in this church, you are violating Scripture. And you need to repent. So, so ask, ask yourself this question. Are you loving the brethren by inviting them to your home? Fifth, rejoice. Rejoice. Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. If you're familiar with that verse, you know that it's followed by the words, weep with those who weep. I'm focusing on rejoice with those who rejoice because that's far more difficult and far less common than weeping with those who weep. You can weep with a stranger. It takes love to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, wh why is that? Because of the residual self-centeredness of the old self. When, when, someone, when, when someone has something good happen to them, particularly something that I find desirable, that sinful old self pushes the thought, wow, I wish that was me. When I, when I want something or, or, or even want to be free of something, and God has chosen not to do that for me for whatever reason. But then He does that very thing for somebody else. My self-centered response will be at least a moment of, of disappointment at their blessing. And in that moment, I'm not loving them. I'm, I'm loving me. And the duration, the duration of that disappointment is an indication of the extent of my lack of love. One of my fathers in the faith, Dr. Bruce Ware, he once said, it is a mark of maturity to see someone receive something that you want or do something that you want to do and to glorify God in that. And he's exactly right. I would say it's also a mark of love. Only love for that person and love for God 
can move you to do that. Now, conversely, it's a, it's a it's a mark of an unloving, self-centered heart to see others blessed and not rejoice, especially when it's something that you want. So, let's ask that question now. Are you loving the brethren by rejoicing with them in their blessings? Now, all of these things, all of these ways of loving cost something. They cost something. Some of it may cost money if you're having people over your house for a meal or, or you're going out to coffee with somebody to encourage them. There's something else that's far more valuable that it's going to cost you, and that's time. It takes time to do these things. It takes time to love, and many of us are just not willing to part with that time. That is, we're not willing to part with our time for the purpose of loving people. We, we, may, be, we may be very happy to, to give up our time for me pursuits, hobbies, um, personal entertainment, making a name for ourselves. But we're too busy to part with our time for the sake of loving people in the ways that I've just mentioned. But think about the nature of time with me once again. I'm not the only person who's ever said this. I'm sure you've heard it before. But time is the only thing that you cannot accumulate or store up. You can't get more of it. Once you've spent it, it's gone. We talk about saving time, but there really is no such thing. Every moment that goes by is gone forever. The moments that you have spent listening to this sermon, you will never get back. I'm sure there's some here that are lamenting that right now. But every minute, every minute of your life, you will exchange either for something that will die with you or for something that will live forever. And given the, fa- given the fact that time is such a fleeting commodity, what sort of things should you exchange it for? Should you spend it on things that are also fleeting? Or would the greatest wisdom be to exchange it for things that last forever? Things that you can take with you to the other side. What, what, what are those things that you could take to the other side? I've already mentioned the two things today that I'm aware of, other than your own soul, that will cross this bridge with you to the other side. It's God's word and love. Both of them endure forever. Think about the wisdom of investing your time in those things. The wisest investor of time will pour as much of it as they can into the word of God and biblical love. And this text would have us to think especially about the latter. I'm so grateful for for so many of you who are exemplary investors of your time, giving of your time to love the church well, what a joy it will be on the last day when so much of what you've invested will translate into eternity. Think with me now, what, what can you do this week to exchange finite time for something that will translate into eternity. Who can you serve this week? Who can you incorporate into your life? What me pursuit can be shelved in exchange for loving others in the body? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, 
through the living and abiding word of God. This is conduct, becoming of an elect exile. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful to be a member of Providence Bible Fellowship and of all the, all the places where I have worshipped in my life. I've not seen people love one another like I've seen it here. I'm grateful for that. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to hunger demonstrate this all the more <coughs> because we have loved in the past does not mean that we have arrived pray father that you would just give us a great desire to emulate Jesus in these things that people would 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 look at this congregation from the outside and say of it, not they are, wow, they are theologically squared away. Not that, wow, they have, their music is fantastic, but those people love one another. That is how you said they will know that we are your disciples. Lord, let that be true of us. Please let your word have its way in us in these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.